in the Marine Corps or in any military service or probably anywhere in a, in a job, um, it's interesting when you have a, a change of leadership. And I can remember um, being a, a young Marine and there would be a, a new change, new commander coming in and you would see um, you know, this guy or this lady walking around and you knew that they were someone important because they had the brass on their collar and um, they would walk around and you go, okay, this is strange. And they just observe and they would do things. And then there would come a day though where they would make their public uh, presentation that they were the new um, commander, the new commander of the unit. And it was this change of command ceremony. It was, it was really a time where they would publicly proclaim their command of the units and then they would give a statement about where they thought the command should go. And today, we're going to kind of look at something um, sort of like that. Jesus here is making a public proclamation, and this is a public ceremony as he presents himself as the king. And Jesus makes a strong statement as he walks in to Jerusalem and goes to the temple. He, he makes a, a pretty big statement on what type of king that he is and the extent of his authority. And most of the time, we, we like to compartmentalize Jesus. We like to keep Jesus in a box, and he's king over this, but maybe not king over everything. But as Christians, Jesus is the king of every aspect of our lives. And today, we're going to look at Jesus' entry in Jerusalem. And the title of today's message is The Triumphal Statement. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Matthew 21. And just to give you some context... It is the time of Passover, so it's the time of the Jew Jewish celebration, and all these people from the known world are just flowing in to Jerusalem to celebrate. So there's a lot of people, there's a lot of excitement, and as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple. So he comes into the, 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 to Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple, and the temple was the, the religious, the political, the social, and the ethical stronghold of the Jewish society, and he he makes a statement in regards to those spheres of life. Jesus makes these statements and he challenges every sensitive and off-limits topic that we would, we would consider today. And today what I want to do is I want to examine the religious statement, the political statement, the social statement, and the ethical statement Jesus makes and see how it applies to our life. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we get to celebrate your son, Jesus Christ, coming in as the conquering king. We pray that you would illuminate your scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. Teach us the things that we do not know about you. We just, we want to worship you in truth and spirit. So that's what we pray for right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want to look at is the king's religious statement. We see as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he makes it pretty clear that Jesus is the divine king. Verse 1 says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Jesus divinely sends his disciples to the exact place to get a donkey that no one had sat on. Sat on. And we read that in, in, in um, Luke's accounts. And this was really to point to this holy and divine purpose. 
Oftentimes people say, well, Jesus could have crafted this, crafted this encounter. But yet we know through the all four Gospels that this is Jesus' divine um, knowledge. And he sends his disciples to gather this donkey so that he can enter Jerusalem at the exact time that he needs to enter Jerusalem so that he could become the final Passover lamb. We see that Jesus is the promised king. Verse 4 says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is a prophecy from Zechariah. We read that in the beginning of our worship service, Zechariah 9, 9. The promised king was to bring eternal hope and everlasting joy and was accompanied by this eternal covenant. And Jesus is making the declaration saying, I'm that king. I'm the promised king. We also see that Jesus is the peaceful king. Verse 5 says, Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of the donkey. The disciples went away, went and did this as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. You see, the people were used to people making a public proclamation and presentation of their rule. But they were used to it in a military context. So military rulers would come on these war horses and they would enter a city and they would establish their reign by force. And here Jesus enters Jerusalem on a humble donkey to bring eternal peace. And it's funny. I was thinking, how many of you ever look, are looking for something but you just can't seem to find it? So this seems to happen in our household a lot. Um, I'll say, Erica, where's the peanut butter? She goes, it's in the pantry. And I open it up, I'm like, I can't find the peanut butter. She's like, it's in the pantry. And then she'll come in there and she'll say, it's right there, it's right in front of your face. And in, in some sense, this is what's happening here. So what religious statement is Jesus making? He's saying, listen, I am the one you've been searching for. It's me, I'm the one you've been searching for. I'm the king that brings eternal peace, hope, and joy. And he makes it clear, he challenges the religious system of the day. He says, this is not about a religious system. It's not about getting a religious system right. It's not about you know, standing up, sitting down, doing the right things. It's about having the right relationship with the king, King Jesus. And so the question I ask is, have you surrendered to the reign of the king? Have you surrendered to the reign of the king? And for those of you that have put your faith in Christ, I mean, have you surrendered to him? Is he really truly king of everything? And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I've never put my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know what that means. What does that look like? Here's the thing. All of us have been separated by sin. We're separated from God and we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve punishment for this. Yet Christ our king comes into our experience, the, the God in the flesh, and he lives a perfect and righteous life. And then he dies. He dies on the cross. Why? For us. And he suffers the punishment that we deserve. But then he's resurrected, and we put our faith and trust in him. We now have his righteousness imputed to us, and God sees his perfect and righteous son. And we have peace. And we have joy. And Jesus is saying, I am the king. I'm the one to bring that. So have you surrendered your life to the king? Second, second we see the king's political statements. 
We see that Jesus is the king of hope. We see verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. These branches are palm branches. That's where we get Palm Sunday. And this was an ancient act reserved for royalty. And so they were affirming his claim as king. We also see that Jesus is the Savior King. Verse 9. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Hosanna means give salvation now. And they talk about the Son of David, referencing David. And so they were affirming his, his Messiahship, that he did come to save. However, they had an incorrect view of what he came to do. You see, they had this nationalistic idea of who Jesus was. That's why they attached the Son of David sign on there. They're thinking Jesus is coming. He is the king. He is the one who's going to advance their political agenda and crush the Romans. That's what he came for. So they're affirming him as king, but in a king that they've crafted him to be. Not necessarily for the reason that he came to be. And the Pharisees are totally understanding what Jesus is, is putting down right here. It, they get it. In Luke 19.39, we see some Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're offended by this. They know what he's claiming and what they're believing, though. And he says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus makes it clear that everything, even inanimate objects, are subordinate to his kingdom rule. And they're called to rightly glorify him. So we have to ask ourselves, what political statement is Jesus making here? Here's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, go ahead and have your political views, but don't let your political views define or hold me. Jesus is making it clear that he will not be politicized. He's being very clear on this. And it's interesting, a few months ago, um, I was talking to somebody in the church, and a different church, and they said, we started having this discussion, and they said, you know, Brian, um, the problem I have with you is you're an evangelical. And I said, what? I'm an evangelical. I'm thinking the classic sense of evangelical. I love Jesus. I proclaim the gospel. And that's not what they meant. They attached a political connotation. They put a label on me because I said I was an evangelical. And we see that in our society, politics has really usurped religion. You see, here's the thing. We were created to worship. We're, we're, we were created to have some sense of, of purpose and worship. And as God is removed from the public square, it's a vacuum. Something's going to take its place. And we've seen politics have taken that its place. And we feel that every single day. We see it on the news. We feel it wherever we're at in the context of our lives. And, and to give you an example, I was listening to a sociologist talk about this. He's saying, you know, back in the day, if you went and you brought someone home for dinner, like you, I said, hey, you know, I, I really like this girl. Um, she's a Catholic and I'm a Protestant. You know, parents would have flipped out. They would have been like, oh, absolutely not. But if you would have said, hey, I'm a Republican and she's a Democrat, they would have been like, ah, that's too bad for her. Now it's reversed. You come back and you say, hey, um, here's this lady, I really, I really love her. She's a Buddhist, and we're, I'm a, a Christian, I'm a Protestant. And it's like, oh, no big deal. Oh, I'm a Republican, but she's a Democrat. Get her out of here. Get her out of here. Things have shifted up. 
It's totally different. So how does this happen? Because we could get caught up in this hype. This happens when we get, get, get caught up in this whole frenzy and this hype, and we have an incorrect view of Jesus and his kingship over every aspect of life. And our political orientation must be informed by Christ and its subordinates to the political agenda of our king. We must remember that Jesus came to save people, not political agendas. And his political agenda is all about the expansion of his kingdom. That's what he's for. So I have to ask you this. Are you seeking his kingdom every day, or have you gotten distracted by all this political hype, by all this political distraction? Listen, I'm not saying you should hold a particular political view. All I'm saying is let's put Jesus, the king of the universe, in his proper place. And that's up front. That's number one and everything else subordinate to that. And i got to examine myself on this as well. Thirdly, we look at the king's social statement. We see that Jesus is a perplexing king. Verse 10 says, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from uh, Nazareth in Galilee. So there's people in Jerusalem that they just don't get this. Like, all these people are going crazy over Jesus, but he doesn't fit their mold. And they're looking like, who is this guy? He's riding on a donkey. People are going crazy for him. I don't even know who this guy is. And I hear he's from Nazareth. Whoop-de-doo. Nazareth is nothing. And so they're perplexed by what's going on. We see that his, his own disciples were perplexed on what was going on and who he was. In John 12, verse 16, it says, At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written down about him and that these things had been done to him. Even his own disciples are like, I really don't get what you're doing right now. I trust you, but I don't know what you're doing. I'm just really walking by faith here. And we see also that the, the, the Pharisees are totally perplexed as well. John 12, verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They're getting frustrated. They're like, he's not conforming to what we want him to, what we want him to conform to. And they're, they're perplexed. He doesn't meet their expectations or their, their social habits. And we see that Jesus internally and externally challenged the social norms of our society, always. He challenges us personally and how we interact with people and our society and how our society interacts. And because of this, because we're creatures of habit, means, listen, I'm a creature of habit. I wake up every morning, I have to have my peanut butter toast. Why? I don't know. I have to have my black coffee, and it has to be set. And if you ruin that, oh, it's, there's, you know, what to be paid. All right, so, and you're laughing because you guys are exactly the same way. And Jesus says, listen, I came to, I'm came to perplex you in every single way, internally and externally. We see that Jesus is an inclusive king. Verse 12 says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of, money, of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Jesus goes straight to the temple. And 
In this part, we see him turning over tables. And, and yes, it was because there was corruption there, but there was a bigger thing that was happening here. Where these money changers were conducting their business, this was the, the, the temple area for the Gentiles. This was so that those outside of, of the Jewish community could come into the temple. Yet they had set up shop there and excluded the Gentiles. And so Jesus is making it very clear that he is a king of inclusion, not exclusion, and that, that he is the king of all people, every type of people. We see Jesus as the holy king. Verse 13, it says, It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is making it clear that he has called us to worship him through prayerful dependency and pursuit of holiness. So what social statement is Jesus making here? He's saying, get out of your comfort zone. I've placed you here at this prominent cultural moment to gather those that are different from you to a social order dedicated to prayerful worship and dependency on me under my authority for the glory of my name. That's what I've called you here for. And we fight with this. We, we struggle with this. There's this idea that we're, dis, we're not unified as a society. And we're searching, how do we come together? And here's the thing, societal uni unity is only possible at the foot of the cross. It's only possible at the foot of the cross. It's at the foot of the cross that our hearts are exposed to our Savior. And he exposes that we all are sinners in need of the Savior. And therefore, there is no class system there at the foot of the cross. The foot of the cross is the ultimate equalizer. You can't exclude people at that point in time. It's at the foot of the cross. Our tendencies to exclude others are challenged. And we do have these tendencies to exclude others. We like to feel comfortable, and when we feel discomfort, we push those things away. And that includes each other. It's at the foot of the cross. Humanity is restored, and we look at the different other as an extension of ourselves. And as the church, we are the king's emissaries, called to carry this message and live this out in the everyday context of our lives. That's what we're called to do. And we're called to, we're really called to a mission of transformation. We're called to a mission of transformation. God has placed you exactly where he wants you, so you bring this message of hope and change the societal norms of wherever he's placed you at. So what does this look like? What does this look like for us? Well, I think it starts with getting real with ourselves, internally real. It was interesting at, recently when we had the, the um, we had last Friday, we had this thing, what was it called? The, our cultural moment. Our cultural moment, we were talking about race in America, and, and we had a good discussion at our table about kind of challenging our, our internal, um, really, prejudices at the end of the day. And I thought to myself, and I was reminded of myself, my friend Faustin, which I don't mean to, this is his last, if you see him, this is his last, uh, he leaves tomorrow, so say goodbye to him. But my friend Faustin, the first time I met Faustin, um, he's a PhD, he's very educated, a very well-spoken man. I met him, but his English, you could tell he's not from America. And when I first meet him, and we talk, my initial thought is, oh, he must not be educated. Because he doesn't speak English the way I speak. And I have to be, like, I have to be real with myself on that. And, and how many of us have ever felt like that? Like, really, like, we have these, and we don't even know where they come from. 
It's just that sinful tendency. Whoa, why did I just think that? So we have to get internally real with ourselves. We have to get externally real with ourselves. We have to see, how, does pe- how do people look at us here at Free Christian Church? Like, what do we look like? Do we look like this exclusive club, or do we look like this inclusive family? And we have to challenge each other on that. We need to challenge our society. And lastly, we need to be interdependent on each other. Be interdependent on each other and be radically dependent on our king. And I just want to stop for a second. Just, this, this might be, this is a little different than normal, but I just want to stop for just a second. And I want you to pray with me. I want to ask God to change our hearts in this and, and, and help us with this as we, as we leave this. And we're not ending the sermon, so don't get excited. But I want to pray, and I want you to pray with me. I mean, I mean seriously, like, pray with me. Just don't listen to the words. Pray with me. So bow your head and just pray with me. Let's just ask God right where you're at. Father, we just come right now, and we just... We thank you, King Jesus, for coming. We thank you for challenging our social norms, our internal and external prejudices that we might have. And I pray that you would transform us through the gospel, that we would take this seriously. Help us be a people that is radically interdependent on one another and radically dependent on you and your glory and your kingdom for the glory of your name in our society. We thank you for placing us where you've placed us. But help us when we feel like we're not up for the task. Help us when we, 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 these things bubble up and, and we don't know what to do with, us, with, with them. Help us. So we pray and we ask this and we, we ask for your power and your discernment and your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lastly, I want to look at the king's ethical statement. The king's ethical statement. We see that Jesus is a loving king. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. We see that Jesus loves the least of these. He's not this, he's not caught up in his position as king. He loves the least of these. I mean, let's get this straight. He's walking into Jerusalem. He has all these people around him. He walks right to the temple. He turns over a table. He's going nuts. He's going crazy, right? And then these people come up to him. It's not the most convenient time for him to heal people. I mean, if he was to have a schedule, I don't think he had the schedule to heal people. But these people come up to him, and he places them above everything else. He places the relationship above everything else. He just stops. We see that Jesus is the compassionate king as well. Luke 19, 41 and 42, we read, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, and he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Why does Jesus weep? Jesus weeps because out of anyone, the Jews should understand who he is, and they don't get who he is, and they reject him. And they don't have peace because they don't get him, because they don't receive him. And I think about this in a New England context. Think about this. Christianity was the hub right here in New England. And Jesus weeps right now for us here in New England. And we're called to weep and have compassion instead of becoming cynics. Just weep for our community. Weep well. Lament well. We see that Jesus is the truthful king. 15, he says, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. 
Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. We see that the chief priests and teachers are upset because Jesus is ruining their man-made system of ethics. They've built this delicate system of ethics and he's just utterly destroying it right now. And Jesus corrects them using the word, using Psalm 8. So what ethical statement is Jesus making? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I have called you to love and compassion, rooted in the foundation of my objective, unchanging truth. Love and compassion with the foundation of my objective, unchanging truth. Not what I feel is right, but what is right, because he's declared it as right. Jesus has the right to ask us this. Jesus has the right because he did the most inconvenient, uncomfortable, and costly thing on the cross. And we're called to pick up our cross and follow him, propelled by love, compassion, and the gospel truth. It's interesting, when I, when I went to, um, the first time I ever went to freefall school, freefall school is where you, you jump from heights of 12,000 to 25,000 feet, and I remember going there, and I remember them going, oh, everything's fine, we all have these safety mechanisms here, and it'll be fine. And I turned to my instructor, who was a Navy SEAL, and I said, is this safe? He goes, dude, you're jumping out of a plane at 25,000 feet. Absolutely not. It's not safe. And here's the thing. When we truly adopt a kingdom ethic of love, compassion, and truth, there's going to be consequences. It's not safe. It's not safe at all. It's inconvenient. It doesn't fit into our lives perfectly. It's uncomfortable and it's costly because we're standing firm in the truth and we're loving in a way that maybe even the world doesn't want to be loved or the compassion that maybe they don't really recognize as compassion. And so we have to ask ourselves on this Palm Sunday, are we serious about following the king? Are we serious about this? Is he really the king of every aspect of our life? As I close and we prepare our hearts for this Holy Week and, and Resurrection Sunday, I want us to meditate on the scope of the reign of Jesus Christ in our lives. I want to encourage you that because Jesus Christ is king, we can live in hope. Listen, Jesus is the king of hope. He's coming back. Like, he came back the first time riding on a donkey in, very, in, a, in a humble way, but he's coming back again. And this time, he's coming back to reign for good, and his kingdom will be consummated. His kingdom started then, and we're in this already not yet stage, but he comes back to consummate it. We live in the truth of that. Here's the thing. Here's the spoiler alert. Ready? Here we go, and I've said this before. There you go. We win. We win. And we live in that hope right now. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. We win. And that's empowering. Because we, we win because Jesus Christ, our King, has defeated everything. And he reigns in every aspect of our lives. And so this gives us a radical purpose for our lives. That we can seek his glory in every aspect of our lives. In every sphere of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this message. We thank you for you coming into Jerusalem on a donkey 
We thank you for reigning sin, overcoming the world for us. We thank you for challenging us and wanting to transform us and transform our societies, not just transform us as individuals, yes, that, but transform everything for the glory of your kingdom. We thank you for that. And we pray for us as we move forward on that. Give us strength in that. Give us hope in that. May we rely on you, radically be dependent on you. May we radically seek your kingdom and not our own kingdom. And I thank you for what you've done. You are just such an awesome and loving and just king. And I pray that we would just fall on our knees and worship to you now and forevermore. So we love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.